Okay, today we're continuing in chapter 1 of Genesis, and we'll be looking at days 3, 4, and 5. Day 3 is a carryover from last week. I wasn't able to get to day 3 last week, so uh, on page 1 of your handout, you've got uh, some information on day 3. What, uh, what you'll notice, though, as we've considered in the past, is that um, the Lord's work of creation... Uh, falls into two categories, uh, two sequences. One of them is he forms all that he has made uh, in days one through three, and then he fills what he has formed in the last three days, or six days of creation. So we come to day three, and in day three we have uh, the gathering of the waters. Uh, you remember on day two, uh, the Lord created what some translations refer to as the firmament, but more properly, the expanse to separate the waters from the waters, the waters above the firmament from the waters below the firmament. And the waters below the firmament would be what we call the ocean or the seas. And the waters above the firmament, we actually considered that last week. Uh, the firmament or the expanse actually includes the atmosphere and, uh, and outer space. So it's, it's quite extensive. But on day three, what the Lord says is, let the waters below the heavens, that would be below the expanse, be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So we'll stop there just briefly and you'll see a a very common pattern in what the Lord does. He simply says, let there be, and he says, and there simply is. We've talked about that. He creates, the expression is by fiat, by declaration. He simply says, let there be, and there there is. And uh, and there is this dividing work that goes on. Uh, In this case, he's dividing uh, the atmosphere uh, from the, the waters underneath it and creating the dry land by separating dry land from the water. And then he's declaring his verdict on what he has done, that it's good, uh, that it pleases him. And so this is a a, a very typical pattern as we work our way through these days. And then in verse 11, then God said, let the earth sprout forth vegetation. So he's bringing forth plant life now. Plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind. That's actually an important phrase. We'll, We'll deal with that later. After their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. You, you recall on day one that God created light, or he said, let there be light. And uh, we'll talk about in day four, we've got the luminaries, we've got the stars, the sun and the moon. And that's perplexing to some folks who say, well, how could there be light on day one? And and yet the luminaries were created on day four. That's not a problem at all. The the Lord simply said, let there be light, and there was light. We don't know the exact source of it, but we do know that the Scripture talks about a time where there won't be a sun because the Lord is all the light that we need. So no question, the Lord simply said, let there be a light. And to have evening and morning, all you need is a rotating globe and in a stationary uh, light source, and, and you've got evening and morning as the, as the globe rotates. So it's, it's actually not problematic at all. 
But in this case, what's happening is the God, the God is calling forth dry land to appear in the midst of the waters. And there's a passage, I don't have it referenced in your notes, but 2 Peter 3.5 says this. Well, it's, uh, Peter is addressing the, the skeptics of his day, and the skeptics of his day are no different than the skeptics of our day. But I'll, I'll go back to verse 3 in that chapter. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, that's day two, and the earth was formed out of the water and by water. That's day three. So what Peter is simply saying is he's addressing the mockers of his day, and the mockers of today are the same as they were back in Peter's time. I mentioned this to someone before we started. The prevailing mindset is what's called uniformitarianism, which is that there's no uh, miraculous interventions in in creation. It's simply uh, other than this, what they call a singularity, which was the, the Big Bang, but they have no explanation about how the Big Bang occurred. It simply was what they call a singularity. But this idea of uniformitarianism is just the idea that you've got this this path that's moving forward and that there's nothing supernatural, nothing um, external to it that interferes with what takes place because they don't recognize that there's a, a God out there who's creating things and forming things and filling things. And that's the same mentality that Peter is addressing. Things are continuing just the, the same way they always were. And, uh, but he, he references in verse 3 uh, that, uh, second P- or pardon me, verse 5 of Second Peter 3, uh, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water. That's exactly what is being described for us here in day 3, when God says, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, in verse 9 of chapter 1. That, those two are precisely the same thing. So God is creating the dry land that has not existed before. All that's existed, at least all that's appeared, has been a watery uh, globe of some sort. Uh, The earth, the dry land, was apparently below the water, or he simply created it out of the water. Uh, But what's happening is God is is causing dry land to appear, and there's a a very important sequence that's taking place. What you'll see as we move through this is that there are point and counterpoint in the creation. In day one, uh, you have light, and in day four, as we'll see, uh, God creates the luminaries. He creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. He doesn't call them the sun and the moon, but that's what they are referred to later in in time. In day two, he creates the firmament, or the expanse, to separate the waters from the waters. And in day uh, five, uh, you've got uh, the, the creation of marine life. Uh, and in day three, uh, what do you have? You have dry land. And in day six, what do you have? You have the animal creation and the birds uh, being created. Uh, and, and so, pardon me, the birds are created along with the fish. Uh, but in, in day six, you have the, uh, the beasts of the, of, of the land being created in man. So you've got this point, counterpoint, where God is forming and then filling. He creates light, and then he creates the luminaries. He creates this this expanse, and then he creates, and three days later, he creates marine life, and then he creates dry land, and then he creates the the beasts of the field, etc. So it's it's a very orderly sequence. So 
what we're seeing here in day three is that God is creating plant life. Grasses, herbs, fruit-bearing trees, and uh, this expression, after its kind, that may not seem like a particularly important expression, but it's very important because when we come to Noah and his ark, Noah is told to take a certain number of animals, each according to their kind. And it's been an, an area of consternation for skeptics today to say, well, you've got this ark with so much square footage in it. And actually, if you've been to Kentucky and you've seen the Ark Museum, which is built to scale, it's really very large. But having said that, uh, people will say, how could all the species fit in there? And the answer is, the species aren't synonymous with kinds. I've got a, uh, an appendix in this handout that I won't be covering today, but it actually begins toward the end of the handout, and it addresses very specifically what kinds are. It's somewhere, I remember when I was, you've got kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. That's the, that's the sequence that, that, that we use in, in taxonomy today. And the, the kinds are somewhere between families and species, and so it's not species you've got, but all of that is described uh, in more detail in the, uh, in the appendix to the, to the notes. But God is creating plant life. Well, if you've got plant life, then, then for photosynthesis to occur, what is required? Light. Okay, well, guess what is being created next? The sun and the moon. God has already created light, but in the next day, he's creating the, the, the sun and the moon and the stars. But for photosynthesis to occur, you've got to have the sun for this to occur. And, and by the way, so you've got plants taking in carbon dioxide and creating oxygen, and we're creating carbon dioxide, and so the, the plants are creating oxygen. So guess who needs oxygen? Each of us in this room need oxygen. And, and what's happening is the plant lives have been, plants have been created, and the plants are, are prospering because of what he's going to create on the very next day, which is the sun. Do you see the order in, here in, in creation? So again, God declares that this is all good. So this is day three. So you've got dry land coming out of the water. And then we begin this second stage in creation. He's formed, and now he's filling. Uh, and he's filling in days four, five, and six. And again, day one has a corollary in day four. Day two relates to day five. Day three relates to day six. So you'd have to go back and, and look at that. But it's very evident when you compare those days. Uh, but day four, what do we have being created here? Uh, in, in chapter one, verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. So God created and God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. That little phrase has to be one of the greatest understatements of all times. He made the stars. By the way, 200 billion stars, and it just, he's made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. And you see this separation that takes place. You've got separating light from darkness. You've got separating water from dry land. You've got these, these creating, and then he's, he's parceling out or separating in his work of creation. So on the top of page two, uh, we're still in day four. Uh, but light had appeared on the first day. But now 
it's being concentrated in day four uh, into various luminaries or heavenly bodies. And, uh, and God is placing them exactly where he wants them, and he's giving them roles and responsibilities, uh, work to do. And there's three jobs or three pieces of work that he's assigning. One is to divide the day and the night. Second is to provide signs to mark off the days, the years, the seasons. And then thirdly, to serve as lights in the expanse or the firmament to give light on the earth. So this is the, the three roles for the luminaries. It is very simply to divide day and night uh, and to uh, provide signs uh, and for days and years and seasons, uh, basically for a calendar. And we'll, we'll talk about the, why that comes into play. Uh, and, then late, uh, and then also to provide illumination uh, for uh, the earth uh, so that you've got all of this. And starting on this fourth day, uh, you've got uh, a transition, which I mentioned earlier, where he's filling the creation. He's been creating um, a structure, so to speak, and now what he's going to do, God is going to do, is he's going to fill uh, what he has spoken into existence. So before making the creatures... Uh, plant life, and this, and, and most recently, he's going to be placing lights in the heavens, and he's giving them these three different roles. Um, I, I mentioned this uh, just briefly earlier about the consternation that some critics have when you've got day one, and God's let, let there be light, and he separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day, and he called the darkness night, and he says there was evening and morning, a first day, that was day one. And then people will say, yeah, but there's got this day four with the creation of the stars and the sun and the moon, etc. And, and really, the answer is very simple. God simply said, let there be light on day one, and there was. He himself, very like, was the light. Now, what's, what's interesting about this assignment of the days and the, the seasons and the like is what kind of a calendar did the, the Jewish people have? So anybody remember what, you, what kind of calendar you've got? Is it a solar calendar or a lunar calendar? It's a lunar calendar, okay? And so for, for all of the things that God would ordain, for instance, the, the feasts of Israel, they had to have a, a way of reckoning time. And the, the way of reckoning time for Israel was on a lunar calendar. And what's interesting is that um, they, if you look at the, 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 the lunar cycle, it runs 29.5 days. It's very close to 30. It's not exactly 30, but 29 and a half. So the Jewish year has 354 days. Well, we've got 365 days in our calendar. So what happens is for those extra days, in order to make the feasts work out at the right time, uh, so that the fall festivals would occur in the fall and the spring festivals would occur in the spring and not drift over time, uh, the Jews added a second month of Adar every three years just to make the numbers work out. So you've got, you've got 11 days deficit on a lunar calendar compared to a solar calendar. And so what they would do is they would add an extra month called Adar, Adar 2, every three years to make the numbers all work out so that you'd end up with 365 days. That's a freebie. That's not on the nose. But, that's, but it's important that you recognize that when Israel had a calendar, it was based on a lunar calendar. Well, how would God's creation reckon time if he didn't give them a clock? Well, he gave them a clock. And, and, and the second purpose that was provided for them was to provide signs and days and seasons and years and the like so that they could reckon time. And that's very important. And, and it's important because you get to Daniel 9, uh, for instance, when it talks about the, the coming of Messiah, and that's based on years. Well, how would you measure years if you didn't have some type of, of way of measuring time? 
So all of this, God is putting into place exactly what is going to be needed. And so you have these different roles. But three tasks at the bottom of page two. First is to separate uh, the day from the night. And that's basically the rising and setting of the sun, right? Well, the sun doesn't rise and the the sun doesn't set, but that's the way it appears to us. It's stationary, but because the earth rotates, it looks like it's rising and setting. But that's that's the way we we describe it. But secondly, the lights in the heavens are are placed there for uh, timekeeping purposes. And then on top of page three, we're still on page, uh, still on day four. This is what I just mentioned. Michael Barrett makes this observation because of their religious observances, the Jews needed to know the times and the seasons. When the Sabbath arrived, well, how would you know that? You have to have a way of finding the evening because God ordained that the schedule would be evening and morning. And so Shabbat occurs on the night before uh, the Sabbath, and and that's the way they reckon time. It's called uh, Erev, which is the night before. Uh, and so this is how they would reckon time with the, with the Sabbath uh, arriving and ending. And when it was a new month, uh, so you've got the lunar cycle uh, to provide them with a timekeeping mechanism so they could reckon all of this into place and to celebrate their feasts, which would, he would ordain in Leviticus 23, all in due time. So the lights are, are there and, and also for signs. Uh, and there would be instances where God would use the luminaries to announce various things. Uh, for instance, in, uh, in Matthew 2, uh, you've got a star. And what was the purpose of that star? It, it guided the, the wise men to Bethlehem, right? Well, who put the star there? God put that star there. And he created that star, and, and he moved that star in such a way, or made it appear to move in such a way that it would guide the wise men exactly where they needed to go to welcome uh, the Lord Jesus in his advent in Matthew chapter 2. So God put all these mechanisms into place to accomplish the purposes that he had ordained from eternity. So all the, the pieces are coming together. And, and then you have this comment that, that one of the most remarkable uh, brief comments in, in all of Scripture is that God uh, made the stars. But not only did he make the stars, but he has names for all of the stars. You recognize that? And how many stars are there? There's a, a note at the bottom of page three. By the way, these numbers are conservative numbers. I, I went to space.com just to see what a secular source would say. And the, the secular numbers are much higher than these. Uh, Michael Barrett, a, a professor at Puritan Seminary, says this, there are an estimated 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. If you were to go to a secular source, the numbers range from 100 billion to 400 billion. I, I have no idea how they come up with those numbers, but 200 is a, a somewhat conservative number. 200 billion stars in this galaxy alone, the galaxy that we belong to. And there are an estimated 100 billion galaxies in the universe. By the way, that's also a very conservative number based on the reckoning that the secular sources would have. So the stars are the work of his fingers in, in Psalm 8. But, but God has given every single star a name. Uh, it, it, so in Psalm 147, verse 4, he gives to all of them their names. Does that seem too hard for God? If, if God can name 200 billion stars in our galaxy, I, don't, I said this last week, but are, what dilemma or challenge are you facing? Uh, and uh, is it difficult for God to, to solve those problems? It's not difficult for God to solve those problems. If he says, let there be, and there is, and he names all the stars, and he hangs them all in the right place, and he puts everything in place, can the Lord God deal with our, our, our day-to-day issues? Absolutely. That's why he tells us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to make a request known to God 
And the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So be anxious for nothing, brothers and sisters, because we worship a God who hung 200 billion stars in place, maybe more, in our galaxy. And our galaxy is only one of many. And he said, let there be. And that was in one day. And he named every single one of them. He knows your name. He created you. And he sustains us. So there is nothing too hard for God. Be encouraged by this as we go through. So then we go to this uh, top of page four. Um, remember the, the context for Genesis. Genesis written by Moses. Uh, Moses wrote this uh, almost certainly during the wilderness wanderings, the 40 years in the, the wilderness. Where did Israel come from prior to being in the wilderness? They'd come from Egypt. What was the religious climate in Egypt? It was, it was rank idolatry. Ra, R-A, was the, the Egyptian sun god. When you look at the, the plagues that, that went to uh, Egypt, uh, ten of them, of course the tenth is the, the, the slaying of the firstborn, there was one where God showed his absolute sovereignty over the sun. Remember that? There was this darkness that, that covered the entire face of the earth, and it was a palpable darkness. You could feel the darkness. God demonstrated that he's sovereign over the sun. The Egyptians worshiped the sun. They named uh, the, 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 the sun Ra, and they, they had names for the moon. They had names for the stars. They worshiped these. They, they believed that the luminaries had power. The luminaries have no power. They're created beings. God has all the power. And God is demonstrating in Genesis 1, we have to remember this, that the people who were reading this and hearing this at the very beginning had just left a 400 years of, of an environment of absolute idolatry. And they needed to be informed as to the nature of God and his creation. And that's exactly, he's showing his sovereignty over everything that he's made. And so they're looking up at the stars and, and they're wandering around in the wilderness at night and, it, and just with no ambient light. You, you, perhaps you've been in a setting where you're away from the city and suddenly the stars are so close you feel like you can touch them just because they're so bright. Well, that's what it was like in the wilderness. There was no ambient light out there other than when uh, God created a pillar of fire by, by night. Uh, but that was an extraordinary thing when he would lead them. But So you've got the stars that are so visible and, and Moses is saying, God made every single one of those. He made every single one of them. He hung them in position. And here's the reasons he gave them to you. Uh, so Alistair Payne makes this point, second paragraph, that the, the creation is marvelous, but it is not God. Its glory points to his glory so that we might come to know him. This is the, the, the problem that Paul is addressing in Romans 1, right? What, what's the testimony that God gives to all of humanity? The creation that, that attests to the power and the majesty of God. But what did, what did we do in our own fallen condition with what we observe in creation? Men worshiped the creation rather than the creator. They do that today. That in, in large part is the, the guiding ethos of, 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 of extreme forms of environmentalism and all sorts of other agendas that we have. People are worshiping the creation and not looking at, and when you see, and perhaps you've traveled and you've seen remarkable sights, I've had the privilege of seeing some wonderful things, and our instinctive response should be, look at what God has made. And every time we see something beautiful, our immediate reaction should be, God, what an amazing God that you are, that you would make these things that I might enjoy them, that I might behold your handiwork. That's the only appropriate response for us to have, to enjoy it, because he's made it, but to recognize immediately that God himself has made what we see. 
But, he, but, but Moses is addressing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he's writing Genesis. And so uh, the next paragraph, it's especially when Genesis 1 turns to the sun, moon, and the stars, that it targets the objects of false idolatrous worship. Uh, you'll notice that he didn't name the sun and the moon. They're, they're, they're called that later in, in, the, uh, in the in book of Genesis. But, but he, he just wanted to call them a great light and a lesser light. And because they had just come from a, an environment where it was Ra and for the sun and it was something else for the moon. And he just wanted them to know, I spoke these into existence. There's a greater light and a lesser light, one to govern the day, one to govern the night. And so they're all lamps. Basically, the word that's used for these lights is it's a lamp. And a lamp has to derive its power from some source, right? I mean, it, it, either it's by oil or electricity or, or something of that nature. And so lamps have no ability in and of themselves to generate light. They're, they're, they're fueled by something. And that's exactly what the way the book, the word that is used to describe these luminaries. Guess who gave the stars and the sun and the moon all of their, their light? God gave them their light. They have a derivative source of light. It's not originating in and of themselves. They're lamps, and God is providing everything that they need to provide that light. Uh, he fuels these lamps that he has created. In Isaiah 40, verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. So at the bottom of page 4, David Atkinson notes, how God's creation of the stars should humble us before him in reverent awe. The majesty and mystery of God seen through his works was surely part of the faith of the author of Genesis 1, Moses. He would no doubt have concurred with the psalmist, When I look at thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast established, what is man that thou art mindful of him? We ought to look at the majesty of creation and say, God, it's so enormous, it's so majestic, it's so magnificent. And what am I, O oh God? And guess what? You're precious in God's sight. He made you. He made you. And he sustains you. Top of page 5. The, the reaction to all of this, Psalm 136. What should be our response to creation? Psalm 130. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He's made everything, and he says this is good, but he himself is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights. That's exactly the same expression here in Psalm 136 that Moses uses in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The great lights. For his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day. For his steadfast love endures forever. And the moon and the stars to rule over the night. This comes straight from Genesis 1. But what's our response? Give thanks. Because God is good. And his loving kindness, his steadfast love is forever. That, that has to be our heart's response when we see God's creation. Thank you, God, for your mercies and for the fact that you're good. So the, the response, our, our praise, uh, this is a corollary of, uh, of, of Psalm 136. Uh, you may have heard the name Johannes Kepler. And uh, I'd like to speak a little bit about him. I did some reading on him this week. Um, the founder of modern astronomy uh, he said this, that the undevout astronomer is mad. Uh, do you know what he means by that? That means that an astronomer who looks at the marvels of, of, of the outer space, the sun, the moon, the stars, etc., and doesn't fall on his or her knees before God is, is just deranged. And so let me just tell you a little bit about him. Uh, he was born in 1571 in Germany. He was in a, a broken household. His father was a mercenary military guy, literally gone for years at a time. 
And so he was raised by his mom, and his father came back, and um, he was a drunk. He started a, a what we would call a bar today, an inn. And he looked at his son and said, here's cheap labor, so I want Johannes to go work in the bar. So that's so he, he, he had his son working in the bar. And uh, the, the bar ran out of money, so they closed it. And, and so, but Johannes had demonstrated some academic uh, expertise, uh, some smarts, and the Duke of whatever province it was in Germany at the time uh, took him under his wing and paid for his uh, university training uh, at that time. And so Johannes Kepler, uh, an extremely bright young man, uh, but he got his uh, bachelor's degree when he was 16, uh, 17, pardon me, and his MA degree three years later. But he was studying uh, Greek and Hebrew and Latin and uh, Bible and uh, astronomy and math. He was studying all of this at the university in, in Germany where he was attending. And his goal as a young man was uh, at Tübingen, Germany, to study theology. He wanted, he was a committed believer at this time, and he, he, he aspired to be a, a pastor. Uh, but God ordained that he would be well-schooled in theology, but that his calling, his vocational calling, would be uh, to be an astronomer. Uh, his contributions were immense. He basically uh, was functioning in a world where the prevailing mindset was that the, the, the earth was, uh, the, everything spun around the earth. And then you've heard of the Copernican revolution. Well, well guess what? Johannes Kepler was, was instrumental in, in formulating the, the Copernican mindset that guess what? The earth is not the center of the universe, at least our universe, our, our galaxy, our planetary system to be specific. Um, but uh, he, he created at least the academic basis that Isaac Newton later used in, for his studies in gravitational fields. So a, a, a brilliant, a brilliant man. Uh, but he aspired to be a Lutheran minister. He was in Germany, so that would have been his background. But God had other um, goals for him in life. I, I, I just did some reading. Here's some quotes. You'll never get this looking at Wikipedia. I, I looked at Wikipedia, and, and it says none of this. You have to look a little bit further. Some direct quotes from Johannes Kepler. Science is the process of thinking God's thoughts after him. Next quote. The chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order and harmony which has been imposed on it by God and which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. Next quote. The wisdom of the Lord is infinite, as are also his glory and his power. Ye heavens sing his praises, sun, moon, and planets, Glorify him in your ineffable language. Praise him, celestial harmonies, and all ye who can comprehend them. And thou, my soul, praise thy creator. It is by him and in him that all exist. Next quote. I had the intention of becoming a theologian, but now I see how God is by my endeavors also glorified in astronomy. For the heavens declare the glory of God. Footnote. We should encourage... Our, 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 our children, if they, if they have the mind, if they have the expertise, if they have the, the in intellectual interest and capability, don't run from the sciences. We, we need to re redeem science for the glory of God. We, we shouldn't run from science. But you'll have to be educated at an appropriate institution so you don't get indoctrinated with atheism. Uh, but, but, but Johannes Kepler, was, was, he saw the truth. And look at the impact that he had. He says, another quote, since we astronomers are priests of the highest God in regard to the book of nature, priests of the highest God in regard to the book of nature, it befits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, but rather above all else of the glory of God.
Now there's a, a, a man of, of incredible mentality that, that did what he did for the glory of God. And then lastly, great is God our God, great is his power, and there's no end to his wisdom. Praise him, you heavens, glorify him, sun and moon and you planets, for out of him and through him and in him are all things. We know oh so little to him be the praise, the honor, and the glory from eternity to eternity. Now there, there's a, a scientist, an astronomer, a brilliant man who saw God in his greatness. So pray that God will continue to raise up godly scientists, godly academicians, godly men and women who will, will go into academia and, and, and point uh, their students to the glory of God. You'll be, you'll be fighting against some enormous headwinds, but it's, it's a battle that must and should be won because we, we need to, to honor God and his creation. That's why it, it should, all of this should bring attention to him. And so if, if, if you have a, a child or a friend who has the interest and the acumen to, to pursue these things, make sure they get trained at an appropriate college first so they don't get disoriented, but then encourage them. We, we need uh, strong believers in these disciplines. So, but I wanted to share that about this Johannes Kepler. It was so encouraging because it reinforces exactly what we'll be saying. The only appropriate response to, to understanding God's creation properly is to fall on our knees and say, God, what a magnificent God you are. And to realize that we are, as he called, priests of the God of all creation. Uh, What he meant by that was God has created this and it's our job to honor him and to draw attention to him and to praise him for all that he's made. So that's that's a little bit of information about Johannes Kepler. Down at the bottom of page five, the the use of imagery, and I'll, I'll just be brief here, but if we reflect on the fact that God created, not if, but since he created these lights, the greater light, the lesser light, uh, the stars. What was He was dividing light and darkness. He was separating darkness and, and light and so on. He was creating uh, illumination. And, and so he uses everything that he's created in remarkable ways in the, in the history of Revelation. Number one, so you remember what happened with Abraham. Abraham was promised a, a, a land, a seed, and a blessing. Uh, well, Abraham was well advanced in years, that's to put it lightly, and so was Sarah. They were well beyond childbearing years, and, and so Abraham, how's this going to happen? And, and humanly speaking, that was an entirely reasonable question to ask. So what did God do? He took him outside at night, and you can bet that it was one of those brilliant nights, and he said, behold the stars, so shall your descendants be. And the scripture says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. What did God do? He used his own creation. He used the stars that he'd created, this magnificent panoply of stars in the, in the sky. And he said, look at that. If I made that, you think I can bring a child out of, your, out of your wife's womb? And the answer is, you bet. Absolutely. The God who spoke all of this into existence can do anything he ordains. That's what God calls us to do, is to believe his, 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 his word, to take him at his word, even when it seems humanly inconceivable. Why? Because God's, God is, is absolutely true. His word always comes to pass. It, it is never frustrated. So he uses uh, his own creation to bring attention to himself. Uh, page uh, 6. Uh, there are other instances, and I'll just have to be brief here, just in the interest of time. But, but uh, the scripture talks about uh, the righteous shining like the sun in the kingdom of the Father in Matthew 13, the second paragraph. And Daniel 12 uh, applies this imagery, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. 
Uh, New Testament, Philippians, uh, Paul talks about believers in the midst of, of a secular, hostile, unbelieving generation to shine as lights in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. God's using his own creation to teach and to illustrate spiritual principles. So if you want to know what a believer should do, shine his lights in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. And what does that look like? Go out at night and look at what happens. Is This is what God has created. And he's created us for that very purpose, so that we might glorify him, so that we might bear witness for him, just like the lights in the universe, in the sky, bear witness of his creative majesty. And there's other illustrations, and all of this is on page four of your notes, the way that God used his, his, uh, his luminaries. Well, day five, uh, page seven, um, what happened next? Uh, to, to be brief, he created fish and fowl. Uh, he created marine life, and he created um, flying animals, uh, birds. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 20, God said, let the waters teem, uh, with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters. That expression sometimes is used of Leviathan and Job. Uh, it's also used of serpents. It, we, we don't know exactly what these great sea monsters are, uh, but we know that God has created, uh, at least in, in our world, you, you can see whales, you can see other animals that God has created, but he's just saying the, the small and the great alike. And every living creature that moves uh, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, there's that expression, after their kind, and every winged bird went after its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. Well, this is day five. I remember I said earlier there was this point, counterpoint. Day one uh, leads to day four. You've got God saying, let there be light. And day four, he, create, he is light. He created light. But then in day four, he fills in the universe with luminaries. Day two, he creates the expanse. And then on, on day five, what does he do? He, create, the, the, he separates the waters under the expanse from the waters above. What are the waters under the expanse? The seas, the oceans. So what does he do? He now he creates marine life. Uh, and so and then also uh, you've got day three uh, leading to day six. We'll get to day six, Lord willing, next time. Uh, but you've got this sort of point-counterpoint sequence going on. So before the, the coming of man in day six, God gave his attention to the creating animals. Now, when God created man, he was a vegetarian. Uh, he became an animal eater after the fall, but the animals were vegetarians too. So I don't know exactly how that all works, but, but I know that, that partaking of uh, other life was a consequence of the fall, uh, at least men eating animals and animals eating birds and whatever else they eat, smaller animals. Uh, but, but he's filling in the spaces that he's made. On the fifth day, he created sea animals or marine life and birds that fly across the heavens. You look at the, the diversity of all that God has created. Um, I've been to the, uh, the aquarium in Monterey. We have a nice aquarium here. Uh, and, and, but you look at these museums, and, and you don't even have to go to a museum. You can just look at um, a book showing these, these birds and, and the colors. Uh, they're wonderful colors and, and the diversity of what God's created. He made every single one of those. 
God did not create a boring universe. He created this, this marvelously colored, spectacular, diverse universe with all the different fabrics of, of color that he's given the animals and the like, and, and it's like a tapestry with the, the, the most beautiful brush strokes that you could ever imagine. God created all of that. There's nothing boring, nothing sort of, um, um, nothing like a monotone creation. Look at the colors that he's made, even in, in, in the sky. Uh, so he's, he's creating all of those things. So, you know, the, the, we mentioned this, but the marine life down, down at the bottom of page 7, uh, the animals that God has created uh, of, of every variety, swarming uh, and the like. Top of page 8. There's some description here about these great sea creatures, and, and, and quite honestly, um, they're of a different variety than fish and reptiles. Um, it's translated elsewhere as a serpent, a dragon, a sea monster, Leviathan. We don't know exactly what they are, but, but God made some amazing creatures. But what were they to do? Psalm 148, verse 7. It speaks, it's the sovereign God says, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all the deeps. How marine life praises God, I don't know, but, but, but that, that's their responsibility. They praise God by, by existing and bringing attention to him. So when you see uh, sea life and you see uh, these amazing things, there are, are animals, uh, fish, that, that only exist at extreme depths. And some of them uh, don't, you'll never see unless you're in one of these vessels that takes you down way deep. And you'll see in certain uh, colors. You'll, you'll, you'll see, if you've been to the Caribbean, you'll see a different kind of uh, fish life than you'll see here on the Mississippi, for instance. You'll, you'll see, you go to a, 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 um, an aquarium, especially a really good one, and you'll see just absolutely spectacular things. And that's only a little sliver of what God has created. I mean, they're, they're my, my roommate in college, um, not a believer, but, uh, but his, his goal was to be uh, one of these scientists that goes out on these ocean-going ships and, and studies the animal life. And I think, what a remarkable life that would be, like Jacques Cousteau out there, but except from a believing standpoint, seeing the majesty of what God's created and how they all interplay with, with each other. But they were all made on day, day five. So then you've got the birds that are created all according to their kind. Now, what I'd like to do now, I'm just going to have to skip forward just in the interest of time. I want to bring your attention to two things. One, page nine, um, family worship. Uh, Joel Beakey, uh, many of us have learned, uh, Jeff has learned a lot from Joel Beakey. I've learned an immense amount of Joel Beakey from Joel about family worship. And uh, he has a, a, a family worship guide on Genesis, and it's designed for children ages 5 through 12. So those of you that have children or grandchildren somewhere in that five, and it could be 14, there's nothing hard and fast about 12. But, uh, but he goes literally uh, chapter by chapter in the book of Genesis, and, and guess what? The, the adults could probably benefit from this as well. But it, it, these are good thought-provoking questions uh, about creation. So for instance, um, on, on day four, uh, what did God do uh, on, let me go to day four. Uh, what were the two great lights that God created on the fourth day, the sun and the moon? Why did God create them? To light up and heat the earth. Uh, and then read Genesis 1, 20 to 25. Um, and then he says, uh, main idea, there's an order and a diversity in creation that reflect God himself. And then how do the first three days prepare for the second three days of creation? That's what I was just teaching a little bit earlier. 
What does the order in creation teach us about God? He's a God of order. He does nothing without a plan or accidentally. So chapter by chapter, if you've got children or grandchildren or you want to give a gift to a family to, to help them in their family worship and guide them through the book of Genesis, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, so what should we do? Consider the power of God in creation. If a computer were observing 10 million stars per second, it would take 63 million years to count all the stars. I don't know how they did that calculation, but I'll take their, their word for it. Um, such is the power of the Almighty. Remarkably, the stars are the work of his fingers, Psalm 8. But salvation is the work of his right hand, Psalm 98. In a wonderful way, God's work in making believers new creations in Christ Jesus demonstrates a power greater than commanding the world into existence. Let us be amazed at the wonder of creation. Let us be overwhelmed with the wonder of grace. How does saving grace display even greater glory than creation? So just it, these, this is where I want to lead all of us. As we go through these days of creation, the, the, the appropriate response should be for us to, to meditate on these passages, to, to reflect on the amazing complexity and order and color and uniqueness of what God has made and to say, what a magnificent God. And this is my God, and he calls me his child. And I have a covenant relationship with this God. And he, he's always there for me. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. And when I call upon him, I have his ear. And when he speaks to me in his word, I'm reading the exact words that he wants to give me. The same God who spoke everything into existence is giving me everything I need to know to live rightly before him. And he's given me his Holy Spirit so I can understand these things. And he's shaping me more and more in, in all of my fallenness and to bear more and more resemblance into his dear son. That's the God that we worship. That's the God that created the entire universe. So I want you to be encouraged by that. And then lastly, page 10, for those who are interested in this issue of what are the kinds, uh, I've abbreviated an article from Answers in Genesis about what are the kinds in Genesis. And uh, some of us have been to a... a, a a place in the, in the outlying area of St. Louis where they actually have these animals. But on page 11, you've got a zonkey and a zorse. So if you want to see what those look like, there's pictures there for you. But this, it, this becomes significant when you consider, as we will, uh, Noah and the ark and taking two of every kind and certain numbers of every kind and knowing that uh, is, this is discussed in great detail how kinds are not necessarily synonymous with species. And so what happened, we, we don't need to doubt, was Noah able to literally fulfill God's mandate of taking a, a male and a female of every kind and, so that he could repopulate the, the earth and so we'd have the, the creation as it currently exists? Was there a worldwide flood? Yes, there was a worldwide flood. But did, did Noah actually fulfill what God said he did? Yes. Could he do it with taking two of every kind? Yes, he absolutely did. So this is an article, three or four pages long, that will explain, if you're interested, how the word kind is used so that it will be an encouragement to you.